Hey, we're in Mark chapter 14. Brilliant section. Um, to me, this part of Mark, it's the last section, and it's like almost holy ground. Like, remove your shoes, we're on holy ground. Please don't actually do that, but it's kind of just an amazing section of Scripture. Um, really hard. Really bad government made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the high priest, and they coalesce into this group that killed Jesus. They're the source. And out of this kind of bad source comes betrayal and denial and lies and more bad leaders and ridiculous charges and sham courts and unfair jailings. Sounds sometimes like today, but um, the good news out of all this, it's how it ends. It's brilliant. And I have these two pictures that I like because they kind of explain that kind of brilliance. So here's the first picture. <laughs> I love the dog. The dog's like, bad boy, look what you've done. <laughs> you did this to me. So everyone has that picture, right? Your kids do something. They mess up your wall. You have to go to Sherwin-Williams and get new paint, right? But here's the next picture. How amazing is that? That's the end of Mark. A total mess up, right? And out of it comes this beauty. I have one of my favorite sayings is, God writes straight with crooked lines, the crooked lines of a, a corrupt government, the crooked lines of betrayal and denial and six false courts and all this, out of it becomes the greatest act ever, that the death of Jesus is our atonement, that three days later he rises defeating death. Out of all this gross evil comes the most beautiful thing ever. And so that's this sec section. I love it. It's amazing, okay? So we are going to jump in Verse one, chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people, right? This might be unpopular. We took a poll, so let's make sure and hide it. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done 
will be told in memory of her. And then next you have the betrayal by Judas. It's like evil, good, evil. It's an evil sandwich with a little bit of good in the middle. So here's what I'm gonna try to do. Explain this story. It's brilliant, it's amazing. Grab one phrase from it and try to talk about maybe the biggest controversial subject in our city right now. So that's where we're going. So first, our story. Jesus eating a meal. This woman comes in. Some believe it's Mary. Could be, I'm not positive on that. Has this expensive perfume. Breaks the bottle, pours it on to Jesus. And then there's this conversation, right? Couple things to know. Number one, is Jesus had a ton of ladies involved with him. His story begins with a woman, Mary, his mother. Then you've got Mary, John's mother. Then you've got Mary Magdalene. Then you've got Mary in Luke chapter seven who anoints Jesus. Then you've got Mary, the sister of Martha. What does that mean? Name your daughter Mary. She'll be used by Jesus, apparently. He has an affinity for Mary's. Jesus elevates the position of women. In a society that kind of overlooked them, Jesus just elevated them, had them around them, used them because the Bible says this, we are joint heirs of the coming kingdom. Kings and queens, it's brilliant. The meal, it's in this guy and he's called Simon the leper. We're not talking about a cat, we're talking about leprosy, the most feared disease at the time. Just brutal. It'd be like us fearing Ebola. It's that kind of disease. So why? First of all, why is his name Simon the leper? Could you imagine that? Oh, there's Chris the cancer, Frank the flu, Larry the leukemia, Patty the pandemic. Like, what in the world, right? But certain cultures, they just do that. So I lived in Vanuatu for a school year, and I replaced a teacher who had been there the year before. His name was Mike Whitman. And Mike Whitman, if you know him, he is a giant. He's like 6'6", and a, just a, he's a walking mountain of a man. Great guy. And so Nevan people, they're actually kind of smaller people. So he was just like Goliath there. Great Bible teacher, loves Jesus, wonderful man. Well, they, they called him this. This was the name that they called him to his face. It was Fat Fat Mike. <laughs> right? That was it. Like Fat Fat Mike. So I'm there, and they're like, hey, you're, you're at Searchlight Bible College. Yeah. And people that knew him from the previous year were like, oh, do you know Fat Fat Mike? I'm like, I do. And I just call him Mike. I don't know. It seems simpler to me, and I don't get pounded for it. But that's kind of the culture. Like, we identify them by some attribute, Right? So this guy, he's known as Simon the leper, a scary disease. Now, don't we avoid disease? Don't we have like an aversion to anything that like remotely seems like a disease or could get you sick? Don't you, re don't you really avoid it? Fully. I remember when Elijah, my son, when he was about two, we made, I made, have you ever had these? Peanut butter and banana with honey sandwiches. They're so good. You, you, you fry them just a little bit in butter too because it softens the peanut butter so it doesn't clog your throat. 
Oh, they're so good. So we're sitting down and we're eating our peanut butter and banana and honey sandwiches. And I forgot to get water. And so I started to get like... And so Elijah, thoughtful two-year-old, is like, Dad, I'm going to get some water. So he grabs a cup, but he's too small to go to the kitchen sink. So he disappears into the bathroom. <laughs> yes. Like, you already know it, right? Number one, he brings out. Number one, like, he sets it down, and he's just watching me. And I'm like, mm, actually, son, I'm fine, right? Like, this wrestling match. Because number one, I was like, where did he get the water? Did he dip that cup? Like, ugh, right? And then number two, it just came from the bathroom. I don't drink water in the bathroom. But that makes no sense. I know the plumbing. I did the plumbing in my house. It all goes to the same source, but it came from the bathroom. It's in us. There's something just like, ew. It's, ugh. So they did a test on people. They made these white plates, and then they, they painted a black rat on them, kind of like this picture right here. And then they just glazed the whole thing. And then they served people a meal, and then they watched them. The majority of people would not eat food that had just touched the glazed rat. Totally doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't matter. There's something in us that's like, ooh. Because we know this. Disease transfers. You go to your office, and a guy with the flu sneezes on you. Are you worried? Oh no, I might get sick, right? But a healthy person sneezes on somebody with the flu. Is he like, oh no, I might get healthy? Uh uh. It's one way. And so we know that. We know that, uh, uh. So in that, what has happened is there's this idea about God that God can't be around sick, sinful sinners. He can't do it. And that's in us theologically, it's in us culturally, it's in us just as humans, but is it biblical? I'm going to repeat this till the day I die. First two sinners in the Bible, Adam and Eve, what does God do? Does he shun them? I can't be around you, you're sinful. No, he rushes to them. Hey, where are you guys at? He clothes them. He speaks to them. Says, hey, here's what's going to happen. Here are the ramifications for your sin, no doubt, but God rushes to them. How about Isaiah the prophet? He shows up at the temple. God shows up that day. And Isaiah describes it as the temple, the foundations of the temple were being torn apart by the very presence of God. And so he falls down and says, uh-oh, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm doomed. And what does God do? You have unclean lips, hell for you. No, a coal is taken from the altar and touches his lips and then God commissions him for service. It's brilliant. How about Jesus? God in the flesh. Is he ever around sinners? Of course. He'd have been really lonely if he wasn't, right? So, no way. I think Mark and Matthew does this as well, is making one final point theological, and bringing out this guy's name. Oh, look at this. Jesus. So beautiful, so attractive. He attracts the drunkards and the prostitutes and the sinners. They flock to him because of his acceptance of them. Oh, it's brilliant. So Mary, or whoever this woman is, responds to who Jesus is in his character, and she anoints him with this very costly ointment. It would be worth, well, 
you made 300 denarii in a year. So whatever you make for one year, she is taking that amount and she is breaking it and anointing Jesus because in her estimation, he is worth it. And Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing. All Mary can see is how Jesus is and how great and worthy he is. But the rest of the crew, all they can see is the ointment and how costly it is. And so they start to murmur. What a waste. It could have been sold and given to the poor. There's always those kind of people, you know that? Like they come here and they're like, what a waste. You should just have a drab building. When we were building it, there was somebody kind of on the committee who was like, well, the windows are too expensive. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? No way. Jesus is worth it. Absolutely. He's worth it. Something happens when you begin to not do beautiful things anymore. If you're old like me, I'm 50. Perhaps you remember the USSR. An atheist, just conglomeration of Soviet states. And what they did in the 50s and 60s is they began to build out behind the Iron Curtain. And if you look at the architecture, it's block and drab. 500 square foot just apartment, warehoused people like rats. They've done studies on people that grew up in that, behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. And they found that their rates of depression and suicide skyrocket compared to other people because we need beauty. We need it. We need beautiful things. It's not a waste. Think about utopian or dystopian movies, I should say, of the future. How the color's always like kind of sepia tone. It's always like just drab, right? Because they know that would be a bummer to live in a kind of place like that. Beauty matters. We know that as people in Grants Pass. Remember about 12 years ago, we couldn't keep the libraries open? My kids were all young then, so I'd always try to go to the library and they'd be open like one hour a week and that was it. And a bond measure failed and they had these kind of fundraisers, and they just couldn't raise any money to keep the library open. But then at that same time, the caveman was burned, and there was a fundraiser for the caveman, and instantly, like, three times the amount needed to repair the caveman was instantly found somehow. Fundraised, no problem. Why? Beauty. (laughs) Art, baby. Grants pass art. That's why. So Jesus is, ah, this is good. And he says, it's so good, this story is going to be repeated a billion, billion times. So you've got a group that's in there that's saying, what a waste. They scold her. It's too expensive. It's too good. Should have been used for the poor. Jesus defends her. No way. Leave her alone. Knock it off. You're always going to have the poor. You can do good for them whenever you want What she's done is beautiful, is historic, is memorable. And for all history, people will talk about it. June 12th, 2022, Grants Pass, Oregon, nine o'clock service, Edgewater Christian Fellowship, we're talking about this story. Historic, because it's so beautiful. So two things to try to draw out of this. Number one is beware of the social gospel. And number two, what's the best way to help the poor? Number one, beware of the social gospel. So let me try to explain that with something I taught a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night. It's 
talking about David, King David, and King David is the benchmark for every king. Every other king is compared to King David. This man was like his, his father David. This man was not like David, right? He's the benchmark. And when he's at the zenith of his power, this is what it says about David, how he ruled. It's 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Those two words are huge in the Old Testament. The two words, justice is mizpah. It means God's justice. Sadaqah, better translation, not equity, is righteousness. God has justice, mizpah, and sadaqah, righteousness. Those are the two things, the two twins that God has. The left in our country loves God's justice, his care for the poor and the weak and the widow and the orphan. They love God's justice. The right in our country loves God's righteousness. Work hard, do what's right. Shepherd your sexuality correctly according to biblical standards. Love the righteousness. God loves them both. That there is to be a balance between justice, care for the poor and the widow and the broken and the orphan, and God's righteousness. That he has a standard and that that matters to God, right? So we're supposed to be people that somehow managed to kind of balance these two things well. And that tension sometimes, it's really easy, like a pendulum, to swing one way or the other, be all about justice and no righteousness, or be about all righteousness and no justice. It can happen in my heart. So two years ago, there was this little 600 square foot house in Brookings for sale, and we love Brookings, so it was just a total teardown essentially. So we bought it. So we have this little spot in Brookings, love the coast. Right in front of it is a parking lot. And so my neighbor over there, I was over there a couple of months ago, my neighbor Tyler, he works for the Coast Guard, great guy. He's like, hey man, I know you haven't been here for a while, but there's been somebody in a green van and they've been parked right here in front of your house and they've been camping there. And I'm like, oh no, because you start worrying, right? Like drugs and What's gonna happen in fights and you know, what, what's gonna happen? And so he's like, so I'm gonna start parking my truck in my trailer so that they can't park there anymore. I'm like, all right, good, yeah, all right, mm-hmm, yeah, you get them, right? Well, the next day, my wife comes, right? So she shows up and she's like, I'm working, doing something. And she comes over and goes, hey, Matt, did you see the people that are in the van camping out in front of our house? I'm like, oh, yes, I did. I did see them. She goes, oh, I went and met them. They're the nicest couple. I think we should cook them dinner. I said, yes, we should. That's exactly what I was thinking, sweetie. Uh-huh. Cook them dinner. <laughs> All right? We got to be careful. There should be in us a tension between justice and righteousness because if you lose that tension, you go one way or the other way. And so the social gospel, what the social gospel says is this, you don't need to anoint the king at all, just give stuff to the poor. Leave Jesus out of the picture, just do your good works, don't worry about any kind of righteousness, don't do any of that, don't share Jesus, just be social, do good works. 
but don't, don't share the good news. So that's the social gospel. And it's been around in one iteration or another probably as long as Jesus has. There's been this kind of, ah, oh, you can push Jesus to the margin. He doesn't matter. You don't have to anoint him. You don't have to make him beautiful. You don't have to make him the center. Don't do that. Beware of that. I believe in Jesus-centered ministries. Jesus says this. He says, what does it profit a man? If he gained the whole world, gets a new house, gets a free whatever, gets everything given to him, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is the savior of lost souls. So the only kind of ministries I get behind personally, the only kind of ministries I promote personally are ones that balance both of those things. Yeah, justice and righteousness. Yeah, we'll do good things because then we're gonna share the good news. We're gonna center it on who Jesus is and that you need a savior. He is the only way to the Father. You need to be saved, period. So beware of that. Beware of this, ah, right? Number two, best way to help the poor. So, what's the big problem in Grants Pass right now? Is it food? Are people starving to death? Hmm. I have an article from the Daily Courier about 10 years ago, and they had a, a homeless, houseless, whatever you call it now, person on the cover. And they were interviewing him. And he said this, you would have to be a moron to be hungry in Grants Pass. And they started to just list all the places, just a massive list of places that you can go and find food here. Like they're everywhere, right? So it's not food. What is it? It's housing. It's people can't find homes. That's the big problem. And Ezra's not new to this. So before warming centers were hip and cool and virtue signaling and all that, we did a warming center. I think 2011, 2012, 2013. Like right in there, we did a warming center. And we did it, and um, we stopped for a number of reasons. One of them was, on year three, it was, hey, well, we'll see you guys next year. That's a problem. That if you're not moving and starting to try to get and change, uh, wait a second, all this work, and it's just, see you next year. Didn't feel like, mm, that's the best use of our effort. So, boy, we've been, we've been worried about, all right, homelessness and these problems. So, what's the solution? Urban campground, right? That's the big proposal right now in our city that we should do an urban campground. Where do I stand on that? I just say, you don't make a problem permanent. Like, that's a problem. I think it's a problem for people to live under a blue tarp. At least in the 1960s, when they went through a homeless crisis, they're like, let's build houses for them. Called the projects, didn't work, but let's at least build them a house. Now we're like, no, they didn't even deserve the dignity of a house. Let's give them a blue tarp. I think, that's a problem. Why would I ever make that permanent? So right now, the Grants Pass City Council is wanting to put the urban campground right there. So that's where their new plan is to put it. So, okay, all right. So lots of conversations with us and, okay, what are we doing? And they're having to rewrite the zoning laws for industrial land in order to do that. I personally think if they're gonna rewrite the laws, they should rewrite the law that says that the urban campground has to be placed within one block of any city councilor or mayor who voted for it. 
That's what I think. Just personal. I, you want it, man? Okay, good. See how it works for you, okay? So that's the proposal. That's kind of what's on the table right now. It's okay. Now, why are they pushing it? It's called low barrier housing. So low barrier housing is we can't have any barriers to get people into housing. Barriers that might prevent them from, from being in a normal kind of place. So um, I translate that, me personally, as tax-subsidized sinning. Just me personally. That's how I, like, okay. It means they can do whatever they want with the money that you and I pay to the government, and they're just gonna live the way they want. Mm, I don't think that's the best for me, all right? So where do we stand? We wanna balance these two, these God's justice, his love for the poor and the widow and the orphan, and God's righteousness, right? That God evicts people from the garden. Do you know that? God says, nah, you're out. That when the nation of Israel sins and does things really bad, what does God do? Evicts them out of the promised land for 400, uh, for 70 years. So it sends them to Babylon. Like God has a balance of justice and righteousness. And I think that's what we're supposed to do. So at Edgewater, and I've talked to the elders on this, this is where we believe the solution lies. So number one, we support the gospel rescue mission. So um, the gospel rescue mission, not perfect, no doubt, uh, but I think they do a really good job. They've been in our community for 40 years. They will give you numbers on success rate. Doesn't cost the taxpayers a dime done by the benevolence of people that love Jesus and love his kingdom and also have uh, justice in their heart for the poor and the broken. So love that. Love that they share Jesus. They have a righteous character to it. Hey, come in here. We will help anyone. We'll help you, but we're also going to be about righteousness, right? So the city council, we can't use them. Why? Righteousness. Jesus, right? So if you would, they're scolding the gospel rescue mission. Oh, just give it to the poor. Just do it as you are. But as a believer, you know, they talk to me about that. I'm like, that's not a problem for me, right? That's not my problem. Just because you want to tackle the houseless problem with your arms tied behind your back doesn't mean as a believer, I have to. I think Jesus is the solution. And so I think the gospel rescue mission does balance those two well. 100%. I'm not going to attack this the same way as you, you guys do. I think what they do is right. I'm glad they shared Jesus with them because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but by him. So 100%, I support them. Right? Well, do they have barriers? Yeah. Praise the Lord. I try to find out information on urban campgrounds. You can't. It's like they don't, they don't, I don't either, they don't keep track. And I have friends and people that are in the inside of some of these and they're like, oh man, the pretty picture on the outside, not so pretty on the inside, right? But the Gospel Rescue Mission will give them to you. You can go ask them. We had this many people in, this many people got jobs, this many people moved in their own houses. They have the numbers and they have a success rate and I'm really proud to partner with them. Yeah, barriers are good, right? So I show up here early usually six, and I don't know, a month ago, four weeks ago, somewhere in there, I show up, and there was a guy, 
he had uh, driven his motorcycle around our gate and he was camped underneath like the entrance to our office right there. And I don't know how he got all that stuff on that motorcycle, it was brilliant. Like it was enough to fill a pickup truck and just had it all just spread out there. And so he's asleep and I'm like, okay, I'll talk to him later. So I kind of step over him and I open the door and as I open it, he wakes up. So I looked at him and I said, hey buddy, this right here, this isn't gonna work, man, okay? And he kind of rolled over at that time, out of his sleeping bag rolled an empty liquor container. And he's like 25 years old, beard, obviously super capable, right? How could you possibly balance all that stuff on your motorcycle? You are pretty amazing, like wow, all right? You got skills, no doubt about it, right? And I said, this is what I say to every single one of them. Listen, if you want a place to stay, I'll take you right now and I'll introduce you to a place that will help you and love you and pastor you and give you a bed right now if you want it. Where's it at? Gospel Rescue Mission. I'm not going there. Why? Because he can't drink his liquor. I said, yeah, but you can't do that here either. You can't do that here. Well, Matt, what's the big deal? Why not just let him stay there? Two reasons. I'm not always the first person here. Three days a week, I'm the first person here. Sometimes... Mondays, ladies are the first people here. Sometimes, Rachel, she works the front desk. She's not a receptionist. She is our CEO. I'm pretty sure the earth rotates because of Rachel. Pretty sure of that, right? So, she's brilliant. She shows up first. You guys know the numbers. When you had alcohol to a man, how much abuse and danger happens to women. We are not gonna allow that here period. Edgewater, this campus will always be a safe place for women and children. Hard period. You're 25, bud. Sorry. I'm going to go on the side of women and children. There's a house for you right now. There's a bed for you right now. You can take it. You're choosing not to. Number two, it's this. His dignity. So we've had a policy now for, it's got to go back 12 years. 2010, 2008, 2009. Somewhere in there. We have a policy that if you're a young man, we will give you work. You show up here, we'll pay you, we'll give you a job, weedy, do something. We don't even care really what it is, but do hard work. At the end of that day, we hand you cash because there's a dignity and an honor to saying, I worked hard, I accomplished something, and I got paid for it. And you can go rent a hotel room if you want to. So 2008, 2009, we had 15 men probably a month, one every other day. Now it's one or two. Why? Because there's so many freebies. So many no barriers. I don't think it's healthy for young men. You're 25, man. You balance that motorcycle. You ride it through, somehow you rode through our gate. That's brilliant, bro. You can work. But it's for me now. It doesn't feel like it's a bed problem. It feels like it's an entitlement problem. No, I don't wanna do that kind of work. No, I won't take that kind of bed. No, I won't. Oh, okay then, I'm sorry. It's not my problem anymore because I wanna balance justice and righteousness, and you want me to be all justice with no righteousness. So we, number one, support the Gospel Rescue Mission. I think they do a good job and love people. They pastor them all the way out, and I'll try to explain that, to a house of their own, right? So number two is this, transitional housing. So we had, for a long time, we had a house called the Intern House. It's on J Street. We use it for men that would help us set up and tear down the school twice a week. Well, we don't have that anymore. 
So the Gospel Rescue Mission was looking for transitional housing. Men that have been at the Gospel Rescue Mission for a while, they've completed what they need to complete. Uh, They're doing super well, but they're not quite ready to go have their own house. So they need a transitional housing. So we said, use our J Street house. So right now there's four men in the J Street house that are, they've done great at the Gospel Rescue Mission. They've got jobs. Now they're learning to pay their bills and do all those things that you have to be able to do and then they'll move out into their own house. So that's number two. We think transitional housing is needed. And so gospel rescue mission, number two, man, you do things right, transitional housing for you. But thirdly and lastly, this is our third prong. What's the big problem? It's affordable housing, right? I think there are stupid reasons why houses are too expensive right now, but that's a whole different dynamic. So we think, man, the root cause of this is there's just not affordable housing. So we started home bridging. Who here has heard of home bridging? Okay, let me explain to those that don't know home bridging. Home bridging was birthed out of working at the warming center, having people in, watching families, watching the foreclosure thing. All that's birthed out of that kind of experience that we've had with people. So we're like, how do we help? Well, about four years ago, for $100,000, you could buy a house. Isn't that crazy? It wasn't the best house in the world, but you could buy a house. So I had this idea, what if... Five families got together. Five families that had capital, cash. And they got that together and they pooled that money into a bank account. So that now you have a prospective home buyer that's been stuck in rent cycles and is never gonna get out of rent cycles because every time they get a raise, guess what happens to their rent? It takes the raise. So they don't have the social capital, friends or family that have money, and they're never gonna get out of rent cycle to buy a house. I said, what if we took... Five families that are doing well and each put in 25 grand. And we took that kind of pot of money and we used that as cash to buy a house. A house that the bank won't loan on and guess what, cash, it buys houses, right? Not conventional loan, there's no waiting. Hey, we'll take it now, we'll pay you a check right now. So we had that 125 grand, we bought a house for $84,000 in 2018. Think about that. That's insane, right? It's crazy. So bought it. Then with a lot of help from you guys and a ton of volunteer work, we changed it into the Moritz house. And it's beautiful and brilliant. I mean, just an amazing thing. And we're like, hey, this just might work. So since that time, we've done eight other houses. Two are in process right now. We have 19 lots to build on that we own. And then there are 100 lots right now that we're looking at to go big with this thing. I'm telling you, there is nothing like home bridging in our state. I don't think there's anything like home bridging in America right now. That God's ruach to me is breathing into this thing because it balances God's justice, his love for the poor and care for them, and his righteousness. Because the families that come in, they're mentored financially. How to raise their kids, how to be a good neighbor, how to love Jesus. It's both and, and it's brilliant to me. So that's where we're at as a church. We support the Gospel Rescue Mission. Yeah, they love the poor. And they're gonna pastor you because they actually care about you until you get out of this cycle. And they can give you numbers on what that looks like. Balancing righteousness and justice. We think transitional housing, yeah, there's gotta be a move out so they're not just cast out on the street. And maybe there needs to be more of that, I don't know. And then eventually, here's what's most important, homeownership, and here's why. When you read the Bible, it seems like God really cares about homeownership. Have you noticed that? How does the book begin? God makes a really good place for his image bearers to live. 
Good, good, good. Very good. Called the Garden of Eden. Right? They trash the joint and they're evicted. But God doesn't give up on them. He says to Abraham, listen, Abraham, I'm going to give you the promised land, a good land flowing with milk and honey. And when the people move into the land, God puts in these laws. They're amazing laws. Law number one was this. It's called the kinsman redeemer. If someone fell in hard times and they had to sell the family farm, when it was sold, on the outside of the title would be written the terms of redemption. Anytime a rich uncle a wealthy aunt could come and redeem the land for the guy that had sold it anytime they wanted. If that did not happen, on the 49th year, it's called the year of Jubilee, on the 49th year, every single property that had been sold would return to its original owner. That the family farm was always to say, the family farm. How different is that idea? How brilliant is that idea? Why? Because God cares about people having homes. The statistics are through the roof. If you own a home, your daughter's less likely to get pregnant. Your kids are less likely to do drugs. You just go down the whole list. That's unbelievable. Like there's something about having a piece of property owned by you that it's, it resonates with who we are as humans. Garden of Eden stuff. And then how does the whole story end? Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you called New Jerusalem, Revelation 21 and 22, a place of shalom where there's no disease and no death and we live righteously the way we're supposed to, where the balance of both these are finally perfected. So this is where we're at as a church. Tough, no doubt, and I know there's different ways that you can think about it and my door is always open. We have wrestled with this and prayed about this and I continue to wrestle with it because you're, you're supposed to. Justice and righteousness make a tension in the life of the believer. And I know I'm wrong when there's no tension. When I go by somebody and there's not a tension in my heart about what to do about them. I know, I know that I'm wrong. And so, man, if you have ideas or if you think I'm wrong, man, I, 100%, let's talk. Big issue. But as we go to the table today, here's what I would ask for you personally. Where are you at? Are you all about justice? Social gospel? Just give them whatever they want? Or are you all about righteousness? Oh, forget them. Who cares about them? They just need to pull themselves up. Because both of those miss the heart of God. There's this beautiful balance and it brings, man, a calmness to your heart that is brilliant when you balance justice and righteousness, Sadakah and Mizpah. So Jesus, today I pray for us. I pray as we partake. I pray that if my heart has become calloused and I'm just all about righteousness, I pray that you would soften my heart today. And I would care about the poor and the broken and the widow and the orphan and the drug addict and the homeless. I pray if my heart has drifted over where it's just no Jesus, no anointing of you, no making you beautiful, no telling about your kingship. I pray that you would correct me and I'd realize the solution that people need is you. That whom the Son has set free is free indeed. 
You're the answer. So I pray as we partake today, we would be a congregation that lives in that tension, that healthy, beautiful tension that speaks of your heart. So let's eat together. And for the cup, you said you would not drink this cup again until the coming kingdom. You said the poor we will have with us always. Ultimately, what our world needs is you as king. Your return. I pray, Lord, that no matter what happens this week, no matter what we see, I pray that we'd have a hope that's deeper than our circumstances, a hope of the return of the king. You will come and set all things right. Everything that's death and disease, everything that's greed and intolerance will be wrapped up and cast into a lake of fire and consumed, and we will live as we are destined to live, ruling and reigning as priestly kings in your presence. So may we drink of hope this morning. Let's drink together. Amen. So we offer prayer after service. We'll sing one song after that service. If you want prayer, up here will be people that would love to pray for you. And we offer baptism. So if you want to be baptized, there will be somebody over here in one second who would love to talk with you about what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you stand for this final song?